So we are hurtling towards Christmas, no doubt, with very mixed feelings. No change of heart yet from government and the implications that will have for the forgotten 500,000 who are still shielding two and a half years on. Yes, I know, I still have to take that in every time I say it out loud. It's been more than two and a half years now. This is the third Christmas time that people will feel they have been left out in the cold. So we're here to help fill that void and make sure that the fight for Evershield for as many people as possible goes on. Welcome back to Ripples. I'm Claire English and I'm your host, but you may know me from the Twitter Spaces events on Fridays that we call Virtual Village Greens. That's because my co-conspirator, Dr. Leonard Lee, gets us out to a live audience every week and we're delighted that we can help keep everyone up to date and united in this campaign in that way. We're so happy you're tuning in to hear us and see us as well in such numbers. Poor you having to see us. 500, 700, 800 at a time. So this week we are about to take a break for the festive period. We thought it might be the right time to take stock and see how far we've come. Also praise what has to happen next. And as ever, I'm going to give you the unvarnished, unedited live stream with our wonderful panel. And I hope you enjoy the listen. We're going to return early in the new year with renewed vigour. So stick with us. For now, though, here's that virtual village green. Hello, hello. A little bit late to get to you. I'm sorry about that. Very busy people on this panel. Uh, Welcome back to our virtual Village Green uh, run in conjunction with Ripple's podcast. Grab a seat, keep warm, stay with us for the next 30 or so minutes. Uh, As ever, I am your host, Claire English. The main man is Dr. Leonard Lee of Oxford University. He's a guy with the great contacts and tech skills that actually make this thing happen on Fridays. Uh, we're zooming, no pun intended, towards Christmas. Uh, there's still no sign of Evershell being given free on the NHS, but we will persist. Um, holiday season means that things might slow up a bit, uh, but we're on the case and we want to keep this campaign going. The brilliant thing about our virtual meetings like this is that we bring together carers, patients, friends, families, scientists, clinicians, and people who are much better placed than me to read the landscape when it comes to the medical benefits of providing the most vulnerable patients with some protection from COVID. After all, most of us can rely on getting our vaccines and having a pretty normal Christmas, but why can't others? That's the question. We will continue to ask the politicians and the decision makers. So what are we gonna do today? We're gonna do a wrap up, a kind of status check of where we've been in the campaign merry-go-round for a while. Let's look back at where we've come from, what's been achieved, what remains to be done. Uh, We'll touch on the Evershell trials. Uh, Remember Mark Tuttle, uh, the lead on that trial that joined us the last time? Well, be interesting actually to find out what the uptake was. I don't know, Leonard, do you know if there is uh, any idea of how many people have galloped towards these trials yet? Lots and lots and lots of people benefited. So, um, but we've missed all the introductions, Claire. I'm just about to do that. I was preempting you. I was, well, you know, he's here now. So that's Dr. Leonard Lee. Let's introduce you again anyway. Um, Dr. Leonard Lee, University of Oxford, and really glad to help be your voice, basically, and 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 push for the forgotten 500k, because someone's got to do it, don't they, Claire? And thanks again to Claire for giving us the platform for doing this. Oh, gosh, no, my pleasure. Blanche, tell us a bit about yourself again. Um, one of the forgotten 500,000. Um, vaccines don't work. I'd be very keen to see something that does. Thank you, Blanche. Mark. 
Good afternoon, uh, Mark Oakley from Evershell for the UK. Still battling on, still fighting, still banging on doors. <laughs> Nicola? Uh, good afternoon, Nicola Brigden, Evershell for the UK. Same as Mark, still battering doors down, still just making a noise generally. Excellent, and finally, Patrick. Hi, uh, I'm Patrick Cook. Um, and similar to the others, I've been um, I'm heavily um, immunocompromised, been a leukemia patient for over 20 years. Um, I have um, managed to get uh, Eddie Shell privately, but it certainly wasn't my first choice and it really needs to be made available for, for everyone. Thanks, Patrick. Uh, lots to get through, but let's go back a bit because we've been doing this. We've been wanging on for a while now, quite a few months now. Let's go right back to the beginning. And I don't know whether Mark or Leonard or Nicola would like to take this one, but remind us uh, how it all started. Why didn't the government roll out Evershell? What happened? Because it looked like it was going to get green light? Yeah, it was. It was we've been got this a long time, haven't we, Mark? Because um, this all happened with the study of the Provence study, which was the back end of last year. Um, they published that. And then March, it got full approval for use in the UK. And I think since then, we've been saying, well, why aren't we using it? And I think we all saw the 32 countries go online one by one, the whole of the G8, um, America, and they were putting all the data out there. So I think we've been going since at least March. Um, Mark, Nicola, you, or do you think it was before that? Uh, as a campaign group, we've been going since about the middle of May, um, individually. Um, Certainly myself and Nicola and some others have been jumping up and down and shouting for it, probably from when we first heard about it in the middle of March. Um, so, yeah, it's been a long time and a long battle. Uh, and a lot's been happening and the campaign was launched. I don't know. Leonard, do you want to jump in? Well, I, I, want, I was wondering, Mark, thinking backwards, the clinicians have known about this since August 2021, because that was when the first study came out. Uh, when they said, all of a sudden, we can protect immunocompromised people. And I think that was the time that Kate Bingham said that she was going to buy the million doses, wasn't she? Because she was really keen to protect people who weren't going to respond to vaccination. And that came out in the book. I can't remember. Who remember what the book said? Because she recalled very clearly about what was said. Oh, I wish I'd, I'd had the little uh, scrap of paper that I had in front of me, but I'm afraid I don't. But yeah, it would be lovely to get in touch with Kate Bingham, wouldn't it? Have her on this podcast. It'd be wonderful. And she was uh, giving evidence, wasn't she, to a common select committee a couple of days ago as well. So all very interesting. But gosh, Leonard, I had no idea it goes right back to then. Uh, don't know, Patrick, do you remember what was said by Kate Bingham? I don't, I'm afraid. No. <laughs> We're useless. <laughs> <laughs> We're all useless, but we do know that she was very, very keen. And what happened was nothing happened. And then what happened was you guys start to agitate and start this campaign. So, Nicola, how did the campaign get started? It's a grassroots thing. It comes from patients and carers like yourself. Oh, Nicola, you're on mute. <laughs> we have to give a prize for that. It started, um, obviously, I've been speaking with our local MP petitioning for my husband, Scott, who's got blood cancer, and I came across Mark on Twitter, um, had the idea to, you know, set the Facebook page up, um, and obviously it's just absolutely snowball from there, you know, we, we kind of got together and, you know, the more we were kind of 
speaking about what was going on, the more people joined and we realised, you know, we weren't on our own. Um, you know, up until that point, we we're all shouting individually and actually, you know, coming across the same arguments. Um, so, you know, it was time to get our heads together and see how we could break down those arguments. Uh, but yeah, it's been interesting to say the least, hasn't it, Mark? Certainly has. Yeah, and so Evershell UK was born. And Mark, you know, what was it the campaign was aiming to do? It was quite simple, really. It was to get the get the drug into as many people's backsides as soon as possible. Um, to give them the protection that everybody else has got from the vaccines or, or as near as damn it. And just allow people to get some sort of normality back in their lives. There's been quite a lot achieved as well, but we'll go through that. Uh, there was a big media campaign. Um, Nicola, Mark, whoever wants to talk about this, there was a vigil. And then, of course, there was an awful lot of coverage on the media. Yeah, um, we were very, very fortunate. Um, I mean, as, as the campaign's gone on, we've picked up more and more supporters, more and more people that have been interested in what we're doing and fighting the corner for us. Um, we were very lucky that um, Jess Burley from um, a media company came on board. Her husband's in the same position. And with a lot of her contacts, she managed to pull a lot of strings. Um, and basically, a lot of pro bono work was given. Um, and an amazing amount of effort and time went in from all those brilliant individuals to put together the campaign. Um, it, and to be honest, it, it blew us away when we first found out it was going to happen. I mean, to put it into some context, one of those um, adverts you've just shown in, in one of the national newspapers, the full page one, you look, you're looking around about 50, 60,000 um, pounds for that and they were donated free by the newspapers because basically they were in agreement that you know the campaign was the right thing to do and that was across virtually every single newspaper regardless of their political background so it it just goes to show how much support it's garnered and you had the van of course as well going around parliament and which leads us to well we're seeing pictures just now just uh, to explain to people the holding up the posters roll out evershell today uh, at robert jenrick who was the minister then and let's remind ourselves guys it was quite incredible the amount of coverage and a lot of great stuff from the bbc as well from amazing contacts there we, we managed to get you on breakfast news on the today program you name it on some medical specialist programs as well but this was all happening against a very a turbulent political background. I mean, prime ministers were falling by their by their droves. It was it was incredible. Do you remember just how chaotic those times were, Nicola? Oh, I think you're on mute again. We need to <laughs> give another prize, Claire. <laughs> I know we are definitely <laughs> Friday. Yeah, who would have thought that we'd have had such a change in in the government that we had? Um, you know, and I think, it, you know, for us to be able to keep this subject in the media for as long as we have, and there's been various things across all platforms, you know, um, it, it, it's been interesting. I think there's been a lot of hard work put in by everybody. Um, you know, we've still got a long way to go, but, um, you know, it, it shows the depth of feeling on the subjects, um, you know, that we managed to kind of rally everybody around so much and get people on board with it. Um, we'll come to the, the MPs a little bit later, Blanche, because you've had your experience of trying to get some traction there. But I mean, it was interesting, the whole uh, Westminster thing. Some MPs were, of course, all over this, like a shot, like Daisy Cooper, people like that, Blanche. This is the point, and I'll speak to you as well, Patrick, about this. 
you need to engage the decision makers. Otherwise, this just goes rounds and rounds in an echo chamber. And of course, we're preaching to the converted otherwise. So it needs to hit home. Blanche, you've got some tips for later, but how important was it to have that public outing on the green outside Westminster and have people like Daisy Cooper and other people up in Scotland, Jackie Bailey, uh, raising this in Parliament? It was absolutely brilliant. I mean, I was very pleased to hear how well they'd engage with it, how they understood, and they understood the contradictions that were being at play. And this was the, the big thing, I guess, for, for me, is that the vaccines weren't perfect. People had the vaccines. Every shield isn't perfect, but why do we not have every shield? There seemed to be an inconsistency, and that's what the politicians focused on, and I thought that that was an excellent understanding. Mm. Leonard, do you want to jump in? Yeah, Blanche is completely right, actually. There was that inequality, wasn't there? Because if you were the general public and you respond to vaccine, fine, everyone's happy. Um, but if you didn't respond to vaccines, then it was like, well, we tell you you've got more risk and, well, you can just shield, can't you? Um, and, that, and, and I think that was one of the, the issues. I wonder, Blanche, do you think it was the fact that they wanted to make sure that everyone got vaccinated, therefore there couldn't be any one doubt that no one was responding to vaccines, even though the data was saying that, well, if you were sarcoid, if you had chemotherapy, then you weren't responding. So the data was showing what the data showed. Do you think it was that a government line they needed to just tell everyone that, oh, it was all working fine? Or maybe it was the, the want to tell each other good stories um, rather than talking about science? Yeah. Well, probably some happy combination. Of those things <laughs> where, where you know, the, the whole business of government in recent times has been about, um, I don't know, probably a bit stronger point, massaging the information that goes out in order to achieve an effect. I just, I, I will never forget hearing on the news early in the pandemic that masks were useless. Mm. Mm, yeah, I, I'm sure there are lots of things that people would like to revisit, uh, given the facts now. But it's also true that this is politics, isn't it? Whatever party's in power, they're going to put a spin on things. And of course, in the middle of a pandemic, let's be fair to a certain extent. It is chaos. We're all having to learn things very quickly, make decisions under duress that we probably wouldn't choose to do. Patrick, what do you think about the political traction? And do you think there's much more room for us to do more in that space because yes, the vigil happened. Yes, Daisy Cooper had her debates. Yes, questions were tabled, but we're still in the same position. Well, it seems to me that, that the, the, two or three years ago, we had huge amounts of problems for the entire uh, entire country. Everybody really was, was in it and everybody was at some sort of um, level, level of risk. Um, and the government sort of tried, did a lot of a lot of work, did some things that were good and maybe some others that weren't so good. Um, but by the time we'd got to, I guess, the middle of last year, they really were probably sick and tired of it, wanted to get it all, all behind us. Uh, and things were moved sort of somewhat in the right direction for the majority of people. And it seems to me that we are a sort of an unfortunate group of people that are sort of getting in the way of a, of a much, much, uh, much better, better story. Um, and it's, it, it's politically we're inconvenient. It would be much easier if we didn't exist uh, and trying to make it sort of go away, it seems to me. Um, Do you think we're being um, tough enough and, and you know, belligerent enough 
what else has to be done? Because I'm just thinking about Blanche, who has had a lot of communications uh, expertise in Australia. They're, they're bloodthirsty over there, aren't they? The patients groups, they, they literally grab the polys by the, you know, was. Blanche? It's not quite like that. What they do is, is they, there's probably a different mechanism. They engage very directly with the politicians and they can do that. There's, it's, there are some obstacles to doing that here. Um, for example, you know, you, in, if, if it was in Australia, you would have held, you know, the vigil um, inside Parliament House, you know, and you would have had politicians attending, whereas this is a very, this is a more separated kind of mechanism, the interaction between politicians and patient groups. I do know patient groups who have no political contacts whatsoever. Yeah, Leonard? I don't think you guys are in the same position because at the outset, I think there was a few newspaper articles in local news and, and a few people shouting loudly, but before the, you all guys came together, I don't think you go to the person in the street that they'll just that they'll understand the issue of being immunocompromised. I don't think the population knew what immunocompromised was. So what I saw happen in the last six months with every show for the UK um, and 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 with and what you did, Blanche and Patrick and and Nick and Mark, was that you pulled people together and you provided support for them because everyone was just suffering this in their homes by themselves before that, knowing that they were at risk, but not having the support to do that not having the ability to communicate and and actually you guys came together and i've never seen a patient group support each other as much as you do because when someone's feeling down and talking about the lengths that they have to go to um to to to, to shield to give up their work i mean i heard terrible stories claire people reaching out like talking about how they're going to make money in not very nice ways young people just and I, and i think the patient group pulled them back from that brink and gave them hope um, that actually they were listening and even though the government wasn't listening and we didn't put any comms out in this space at all uh, I think that was really good actually so so two things you supported each other 2,000 people support each other on Facebook um, and then on top of that you had the general public being educated and it's funny because it was education from the patients um, and the doctors playing this small bit but I think they move they move the world in the last six oh, months. You've just said something really interesting to me, Leonard, the education thing, because it does have to come from the people who are suffering and their loved ones who are living the lived experience of being that person that can't have Christmas, can't go out the door without worrying, can't hug somebody. You know, this this is it. This is invaluable. Why have we got it so wrong? I mean, I'm talking about politics. I'm talking about medicine. Why is it not more patient centric, the way we look at things, the impact that decisions about money drugs distribution has on everyday lives who are you going to ask that to claire oh, i don't know i'm looking at you leonard <laughs> well uh i think uh oh good okay I, I can't dodge this one why did they get it wrong um i think maybe three things they kept trying to predict the future didn't they mark and they they kept saying there was a new variant coming around it's going to be called uh omicron no it was delta initially they said oh delta wouldn't work for and it worked through that and they said it was omicron didn't work through that too and be one so that they they put they started moving to the outer science into crystal ball gazing um that was an issue maybe they didn't have a decision maker so i think when kate bingham left then then there's no one going to make a decision in this space anymore 
And I think maybe everyone likes to tell themselves a good story, which is um, that the pandemic's over. But I'm not convinced it's over at the moment. I mean, I think the next few months are going to be telling. So maybe it's those combinations, those three things. Um, moving away from the science, um, not having decision makers, and wanting to delude yourself into a position that maybe we the, the world hasn't gotten themselves into. But then you ask the question, why did 32 other countries decide to do otherwise? I don't know. <laughs> let's put that to the group. Yeah, well, actually, let's, let's ask Mark, what do you make of that? Why on earth is it just UK where this treatment was created that we're not using it? I think you've got to look at a hell of a lot of things to get the answer to that. Um, there's been a, a litany of mistakes that were made during the pandemic and they're starting to come home to roost and they will come home to roost in the future without doubt. Um, and a lot of those mistakes have cost money. And I think because of that, people are now scared um, of spending the money. There's been, a, and we know there's been massive political voids. You know, we only have to look at the amount of times we climbed up the mountain, got knocked down and had to go back up again um, with different ministers, different prime ministers. Um, and when they all come in, they get different advisors. And it, it's, it, you know, you have to start the ball rolling again. There's been times when there's been no one in government apart from a figurehead in name only to make decisions. Um, and the whole, you know, the country has to move forward economically because if the country doesn't move forward economically, um, it, it just falls apart, although it's falling apart, some would say at the moment. And so they've, they've had to keep everything going. And we've been the expense of that, I think, um, to, to, you know, to open up all hospitality and everything like that, to get it back to normal, something had to give. And it's far easier to forget about 500,000 people and leave them in this, in this position than it is to, to keep um, restrictions on a pub or a nightclub or, you know, or get the political weight from, from that amount of people. So that to me is, is where we're at. And the trouble is once they get themselves into this situation, um, it's very difficult to then get yourself out of that without getting some egg on your face. And so it's easier to make excuses and to keep pushing things away. Hmm. I want to get onto something more positive in a moment, or th there's a lot to be positive about, but one other sort of fly in the argument that came along just recently, of course, was um, three more antivirals taken away for the immunosuppressed community. Uh, I, I'm, I'm struggling as a civilian to make sense of that. Um, is that all about money? I don't know. What, what are your feelings about it, group? It's, it's, yeah, it comes down to money. It, 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 it comes down to, to wanting to simplify things. Um, we're an inconvenience, you know, and we, we sat, in a, sat in a meeting with charities, with the enhanced protection team, listening to what is predicted to be done in the future, um, moving away from the COVID medicine delivery units to, to GPs giving them. Um, it, it's all to try and move on from it. And it's not necessarily in the, in the best interests of the patients. Nicola, you want to jump in? Yeah, I, I think it's concerning that there seems to be a lack of a plan. You know, there's no, they're withdrawing these things, but they have no alternatives. Um, you know, there's kind of no forward thinking. Um, so that that's the concern. You know, it's quite unbelievable when we sit in these meetings and, you know, they talk about how, you know, how they're going to deliver things and what the thoughts are, but the reality of the situation on the ground is very different. And we know that from the 
feedback from our group members. Um, you know, so so we we pass comments, we were passing information back to them. Um, but it seems to be falling on deaf ears, and that that's the frustration. You know, they want to engage with the patient groups, but they're not truly engaging. You know, well, we this, ask for meetings. But that's really interesting because if you want engagement, what, where are the channels available to you guys, the campaign groups, the patients groups? to talk to government because, well, we've had different health secretaries. We've got Steve Bartley back again, but he's got junior ministers that weren't there five minutes ago. How on earth do you start to open those channels? Are you talking about their advisors perhaps being <laughs> more of a more of an easy bet? What do you think? I think it's interesting because I think, you know, I think they're apprehensive of us as, as, as a group. Um, you know, we know from the struggles that we've had just to get into certain meetings, you know, we've had to really push our way into it. You know, and ultimately all we want to do is represent the people who are struggling, you know, tell their stories. Um, so it's frustrating, but, you know, we, we, we've said more times than enough that we would be happy to sit around the table, you know, with the decision makers, explain the situations and go through it in detail, but we just don't seem to get anything. Leonard. I just want to say some positives, actually, because when we look back from where we sat, where they weren't even listening to you, they denied the issue was not done. And all of a sudden, your patient leads, because of what you all did in your Facebook group and coming together and supporting your patient leads too, you suddenly have the first bridge into government. Um, and, and I know they're not listening to you at the moment, or well, that's what you said, I'm not in this meeting. Not yet. Not yet, not yet, but I can't think of a charming more group of people who are sensible um, know the science well educated and organized because the more organized you get the, the more likely you're going to have that 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 response um, and also I think that everyone needs to understand that look um, there's a lot of MPs which are supportive and understand this this role not all of them because we haven't educated all of them but I think if you educate more then they've got to understand that this is the will of parliament how many MPs is supportive it was about I can't remember does anyone remember the numbers of supportive MPs we're into about 100 one way or another, I think, at least. How many? How many again, Mark? Repeat that again. Along the way, we're around about 150. Right. How they are and how united is, is a different matter, but certainly that have, you know, come back on letters, um, attended the vigil, submitted questions in the House, etc. And uh, this is cross-party, Mark. This is, you know... Yeah, this, this is cross-party. And I mean, just to pick up on something Leonard was saying there about, you know, starting to claw our way into government, you know, we are making moves in now. We, you know, we, we're now getting meetings with the, the enhanced protection team. And, and, you know, we've got one coming up next week, um, which has got some of the heads of various departments like the antivirals, et cetera. We can actually sit down and, you know, put across exactly what, what our views are on this and what needs doing and put the patient's perspective across um, and feed directly into them. Uh, you know, and, and we, we really have had to be belligerent and pull strings to get in there. And I wouldn't say sort of be underhand, but we've had to bring pressure to bear from sort of more higher up friends and allies we've got to get there. Um, but we're in there and, you know, that's where we can start making a noise and pushing these people. Chipping away. And of course, the, the ultimate aim was to get everybody every shelled for free. And that still remains uh, a huge, that is the objective, but things changed. And in a way it was good news because AstraZeneca then decided they would make it available privately. Now, for you, Mark, for you, Nicola, for you, Patrick, that's had big repercussions. Um, Patrick, you know, you said from the offset it, it was a decision you you took, and it's not one you take lightly. But can you tell us about you know the, 
just having that option when there was nothing, nothing on the table. Well, yes, it was a, I hate to say game changer, but it, it, it was something I'd been sort of wanting for, for months and months back since, since March. And um, it had been sort of denied uh, to us, uh, whereas there's hundreds of millions of people in many other countries throughout the world who have it. Um, so I'm, I guess I'm in a relatively fortunate position. So I was able to, to take that, but that is the wrong thing to do because it's not cheap. And um, a very, very large number of people, the majority of people just can't sort of go out and do that. Um, so it, it's, um, yeah, it's just, it's just wrong. And one of the things that seemed odd to me about going back on the, um, the antivirals and the, a lot of things that are, um, the, <coughs> the government are saying is, they d deny Evyshelled, um, they remove a lot of the antivirals, but I've never really seen anything saying, this is unfortunate, so here is something that which to do about it. It's just sort of a bald statement and you're on your own guys, um, which just seems quite remarkable to me, that there's no sort of acknowledgement that, that there is, a, there is a, a problem that they're leaving behind. There's no acknowledgement either of the irony, the fact that every single week the government ministers are saying we're here to protect the vulnerable in society. It seems to be the mantra in Parliament and in any political interviews that you get. Mark, do you know, feel the frustration of that? And I know you, too, had to make a very big decision for yourself about forking out for this. And you don't know how long you're going to have to do that for, but... It, you know how you must have really mixed emotions about all this and the frustration of uh, the government allegedly protecting the vulnerable. Yeah, I, I think my um, mixed emotions are well documented and and um, videoed as well via this podcast, aren't they? Really, um, it's it's you know it's difficult. Everybody has to make a decision because of their, their own situation. And and as I've said to people in telephone calls, etc., you know, people have been conflicted like Patrick was and myself. It's not for people to be conflicted in their own in, in their own situation. They have to do what's right for their family. You know, it, it, the bigger fight is not for the individual. The bigger fight is for everybody to, to come together and 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 push for this. Len, um, sorry, Len's going to jump in here. Well, I think me and Blanche aligned this. Whether you should pay for your own protection for a condition that you'd had no fault in getting, and everyone else gets it free for COVID. I know, protection. unbelievable, isn't it? Um, and also the guilt that people had because just because you could save money and sacrifice your heating bills, your your food bills to get it just for that freedom, we all had freedom for free. Um, but like for other people, I, it just felt wrong. But I mean, I think that's a question that should be privatized. The, the pandemic response should be privatized the healthcare drugs and i don't know scotland are definitely more socialist than us but even, even me as an english person thinks this is a bit unusual isn't it lunch mm. well obviously you know i'm heavily in favor of it being available on the nhs um apart from anything else it's a way of collecting data um i'm and i'm a very big believer in large healthcare systems and their capacity to produce data for future health benefit. You know, the minute you start going private, you lose all that opportunity to collect data about what does and doesn't work. And this, and as that has been a major issue for politicians, does it work, doesn't it work? Well, the only way to do it is seriously, is to do it throughout the whole healthcare system. Which brings us neatly onto the next thing, which uh, another piece of good news, which we didn't anticipate, clinical trials 
Evershell being made available to 350 people. Is that right, Leonard? Remind us. That's correct. I think we spoke to Mark Tuttle last time and he yes. got 350 people free access. And I think the company paid for it and people are now traveling up and down the country to go to those trials. I think it's been a double-edged sword, hasn't it, Claire? Because you basically save people 4,000 to, to, well, basically a couple thousand pounds each. But then I think there was a bit of, it felt like a, a rush to the front, which was basically would have, yeah, and they shouldn't have had to do that really. It should have just gone out in your in in your in your in whenever you go to your clinic next but um it happens so i'm not sure everyone's perfectly happy about that because some people may not have got it which wanted it um but that's not what the nhs was meant to be not meant to be but i agree though the fact that they did it and got some other people so that's a couple a couple hundred more people benefiting and protected and that would have happened without your facebook group without your patient groups without you speaking as one voice if you hadn't done that made the issue big enough that wouldn't have happened. So again, the patients did that. Well, uh, we'll get on to that again, you know, whether that trial could be expanded or we could persuade other people, other hubs in other parts of the UK to take more people on and, and develop that idea. But Blanche, you've had your own journey uh, about applying for the trials. <laughs> it's not been without difficulties. Let's be as positive as we can, but it's been a bit tricky. It has been tricky. Um, essentially, you know, trials take a while to fill up. The, as Leonard says, you know, it takes its time. You go to your clinic, they mention it. Life, you know, you get slotted in. In this context, the poor people who were setting it up, um, I guess, were expecting that. They had no reason to expect anything else. And instead, they got a tsunami. And and it was, it must it's have our been. our fault. <laughs> it must have been horrendous for them. You know, I... I, I felt so sorry for the for the trial manager, and I thought, oh gosh, you poor thing. Um, however, um, due to Nicola's very helpful um, pointing me in directions as to where I can get contact details, um, because that was the major obstacle, was that when my GP and rheumatologist went to send their referrals, the only contact details were the poor trial managers. And so that's where they all went <laughs> um, because, you know, my GP went, did my referral and then went off sick. So that's the kind of situation you find yourself in. Everybody's running. Nobody has time to sit down and hunt through to find specific details. Um, but, you know, hopefully I'm in a situation where I've applied, I've sent my referrals, I've told them I'm a nice person and I don't bite. No, you're um, we know I you. lied. I lied. I do bite, but you know. <laughs> um, but you know, it's it's. I've tried. I've tried my best. So I'm waiting to hear, and with a bit of luck, that will be good. But it also helps that I really think this is a fabulous clinical trial question. The idea of overlapping protections from the vaccines and Evusheld, I think that's an important piece of information. Um, and I think it could change not only the way we treat COVID, but several other things. So I think it's a very important question to ask. And if they accept me, I'll be very pleased to be part of it. Yeah, it's exciting. Mark, are you you excited by this as well, seeing what will happen with this combination of vaccines and Evisheld? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, anything that, that's looking into, you know, things that affect us has, has got to be a positive um, at least someone's taking it seriously. Um, 
and you know along the way it's it's you know a good number of people that are getting some further protection from this so it's it's a win-win in the short term and the long term so yeah absolutely fantastic got some questions coming in uh, a lot of it's sort of technical level shell stuff hopefully we'll get somebody from astrazeneca on the future i know uh, leonard is tunneling away there some poor soul in astrazeneca might be able to come on and talk to us but meanwhile let's let's stick some of these questions out there uh with bq1 variants apparently escaping evershell oh, can i even read that store of them up or what's that well, yeah, anyway. problem, um. <laughs> thank you um you can tell i'm civilian and lfts what is the way forward for the immunocompromised thank mm. you as this person Good. Good question, Glenn. And the one that we all want to know is, is when the variants keep coming in and out and they're going to bounce in, bounce out, disappear, come back again. I've got a feeling that arsenal that you're going to get needs to be tailored to that to that variant. So, OK, you've got to pause it for a bit, but then you bring a new one in. And actually, what's the future? Well, the future is obvious, isn't it? You need to have new drugs coming online. You need and what's more, you need to buy them when they're effective. Buy the drugs when they work and give it out when it works. Such a simple thing to do. And you'll save money in the long term because the cost of people being hospitalised and, you know, the, the pressure on the NHS would be absolutely crazy without this. Absolutely. And I think, again, what the patient groups did is that they they, they pushed out need. They said, this is what we need. So, um, Glenn, I think what you can maybe say is that um, every shell two will hopefully come out by for next winter and you just hope they go and buy it straight away as soon as it's proven or maybe they'll spend another year or two years waiting to evaluate it but hopefully not i mean i think if you get your mp to just get them to say look when the next drugs ready gets out that's the way forward so well, mp tips are coming up but we've got more questions thick and fast oh, yeah. here um, i've got fragile leukemia fragile look uh, here saying um about evershells and saying if we're in contact with covid this is immunosuppressed people do the antibodies get used up more quickly i don't know technically can you answer that one leonard i'm not entirely sure about that good point actually is a good one and so yeah. Every shell is an antibody, so it floods your system with these protective things which float around and bind to the virus. Um, I think it'll probably that if you catch the virus early or bind to the virus and you just get rid of it from your blood. So you maybe use up a little bit, but as I understand it, they've generated to put a lot of antibodies in you, which will last for six months. So um, I think I don't think it's I don't I think it's unlikely to use that much, but who knows, actually, I'll be honest, I don't fully know that one. Good question. Anyway, and a couple more coming in here. Are you concerned by reports from the United States that some states and clinics are pulling Evershield as they say it's not effective against the newest variants? Does this mean we're less likely to get it here on the NHS because government and ICE can say it's not effective? Hmm? You've got to look at that in two parts. Um, I think the government will try and latch on to anything they can use as an excuse, um, whether NICE do or not because they are supposedly independent is is a separate question in terms of its effectiveness in the united states um it is true that some you know some clinics over there have started pulling it however some are now again pushing it back again because they are now realizing that it is one of the only um treatments they've got or preventatives that they've got um it's still being or it's still authorized and still in use by the fda and the cdc they, they've issued new guidelines um basically telling people not to rely on it 100 and quite frankly if you're going to walk out the door and, and, and rely on anything in this position 100 you you probably need your head testing as well as your 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 other levels testing um 
Yeah, you're right, Mark. I mean, the vaccines, I know that my vaccines aren't going to protect me that well because it was all based on all variants too. So, um, yeah, but, but I don't know why, why is that fixation on like 100% protection? Because it looks Nothing like... gives 100% protection, does it? I think 100% protective. It's funny, isn't it? But we get that into our heads that that's the benchmark. That's it. We can't have it any lower than that. More questions. I think this one's from Gareth. Uh, what does the removal of the technical engagement set from the nice evaluation of Evershell mean in practice? Is it good news? Is it bad news for us, he asks. This is definitely a Mark question. <laughs> right, Mark? Um, the, honest, the honest answer to that is we are still trying to get to the bottom of it. Um, potentially, it could be good news because... The government, Robert Jenrick, did promise that he was going to look at ways to speed up the process um, to try and get an answer quicker. And this looks to be one of the ways that they are they are doing it. I think it brings it forward by a good six weeks. He's gone now. Is there he any has gone, but you know, he, he set the wheels in motion on that, in fairness to him. Um, and it is a shame he was gone because we actually felt like we were getting somewhere with him. Um, whether it, you know, whether it could have a more sinister side to it, we don't know, but it's it's something we are raising awareness through the political channels um, and talking to um, our partner charities about to try and flag it and to try and make sure that it's it's not being done for another purpose. It, and it's it's it goes back to the goldfish bowl again. Every time, you know, when you're in this situation, every piece of news you will look at it and look at it from different angles. Um, and I know it's very difficult to take things, especially when it concerns government decisions on face value. Sometimes you've got to. Mm. Mark, thanks for that. I mean, I, I'm really interested in Patrick Blanches and Mark. Maybe maybe we'll get some comments in the, in the Twitter later. What do people understand about this process? Because at the end, they do this really long process over six months or maybe even eight months. And then the answer, the end result is really clear. You press a green button and say yes or you put a big red cross to it. I mean, it's quite a long process with many, many different steps. What do you feel of this? Patrick looks like he's gonna say something. Yeah, about... It's as though the world is very simple, that the answer is either yes or no. And there's no sort of um, understanding that, that there may be sort of gradations of it and that um, there may be circumstances in which a product can be, can be used or not, or there are considerations. But it, it seems, we seem to focus on this yes or no. Something's either 100% protective or it's useless. And it, it's, it's unlikely to be like that. And if it is, if it is uh, helpful, um, then it's like, only likely to, to work properly for a limited period of time. So let's not wait, wait a, a year until we've got the data that absolutely beyond any semblance of doubt confirms it. Because by then it won't work because it'll have moved on. They have to get real, basically, Blanche. Well, that, that kind of brings me to back to the antiviral situation. And as we've seen, they've recently removed three lots of antivirals from their list of um, useful things to give people. However, they were there. I was given one of them. Um, so the, and one of the things they noticed about the one I was given was that it doesn't work very well. That didn't stop them giving it to people. They didn't stop them making it available, and I'm sure there are people it did help. So it's inconsistency then? It's the inconsistency again. Yes. Again, again. There's another 
one more question, then I'm going to move on to Blanche, giving us something positive to do, to feel galvanised as we drive towards Christmas and the new year. This one's from Patsy Stagman, I think. Um, she says, everyone's being very furtive about where we can obtain Evisheld and prices seem to be open to extortion. Are NHS hospitals even allowed to sell it privately? Leonard, Mark? No, because they said that NICE said that, that no one's allowed to buy, prescribe, use until I press the green button. So, I mean, I think if that's what they want, then that so the answer is no. I'm sorry to everyone. That's my okay. understanding of it. I, it's not my fault, Marie. Mark? Uh, I don't think people are being furtive. I think it's it's quite an unusual situation from what, you know, even from the, the, the private sector to a certain extent. And it's it's a a drug that was launched onto the market, you know, not that long ago. And so it's taken private clinics quite a while to get their head around what has to be done and, and how it has to be done. Um, you know, AstraZeneca have certain conditions that they have to comply with as to what type of pharmacies can, can prescribe it um, and who can actually administer it. And so- It, it can know, be quite a palaver, can't it? Trying yeah, to find it, the right place. Um, and unfortunately, we are into the private market and I guess there's an element of supply and demand there. Um, and certainly initially when it came out, there weren't very many suppliers. And so they were kind of putting the price market what they thought. And in some cases, it is starting to come down now. We know of some that are, you know, there is a little bit more competition there and it's being reduced. Um, but it, I suppose for many, it's, it's a niche it's a niche product where they can only have a limited life and a limited, um, limited profit from it. And so they, at the end of the day, they're a business. And, and that's the difference between the NHS and, and business. Well, guys, I think we should cast forward to the future and, and how we can sort of empower everyone listening to this to do something rather than sit and wait for that big button to be pressed or that big red cross. Let's hope it's not that to come uh, with Evershell. But Blanche... You've very kindly been thinking about this and you've had a pretty good strike rate with your political representative. So you've got some tips to hand on to people and caveat this by saying, yes, of course, if you're feeling ill, you're not going to feel like putting yourself out there. But I think maybe if Blanche gives you some options, you might feel you want to engage more with your politicians and there's more chance of them actually doing something back. Evershield UK, I've got those letters on the page as well on the website, which is fantastic. But Blanche, take it away and give us give us some hope. Make us feel empowered. Well, it, it was a big learning curve, but I think this may be able to put a few more onto that 150 MPs this way. Um, so the first thing is devolved nations. So there's England, but there's also Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales. And so anyone living in one of the devolved nations has two hits. Um, so you have your MP in Westminster and you have your local MP, but they do work together and they do bounce off each other. And the one of the ways they do it is through local media. But anyway, I'll get to that. So, and the other aspect about devolved nations that I need to share with you is that they don't always do what England does. And so in the end, whilst it might come down to a decision to follow England in terms of any nice decision, they may not in the end. There are some sort of little clues of cracks showing. 
This is with and, the FMC, but we can't say any more than that. No, no, because it's too it's too confusing. But it does look a bit, it's a bit odd. But anyway, so while your local politician can't really do anything directly to push Westminster, they can push their counterpart in Westminster. So there is a reason for contacting them as well. And so the other thing to remember is that all politicians want to be re-elected. And one of the main ways they get re-elected is through their local media because those are the people who vote for them. So that's another reason for looking at local politicians who may not necessarily be directly connected to, to Westminster. So aside from the, the, the letters that are there um, and sending short videos to, to politicians of local or Westminster ilk, you can also tell your own story in an email, but you need to cover off on five major points. You need to be very clear about who you are, how old you are and where you live. You need to describe your condition in terms that are very easy to understand. Politicians are not medically trained. You will know a thousand times more about your condition than they ever will. And what you need to tell them is not what you've got, but how it affects your life. That's the important bit. Then you need to tell them, point three, how COVID has affected your health and daily life, how long you've been shielding for. It's very important to say that. You need to tell them whatever you shield would mean for you. And you need to explain that you know it's not perfect, but neither are the vaccines. So, you know, it, it doesn't seem right that there are vaccines protecting people in general, but the only drug that would currently help us isn't available. And finally, ask their advice. This is for the shyest amongst us who, who aren't so comfortable with um, the warrior um, take that Mark has so admirably that, you know, I completely lack. Um, so, oh, right. so, <laughs> well, but I also, I don't have the energy and I don't have the um, temperament. So this is, this is what I do because I'm a bit of a wuss. Um, but I ask their advice in terms of, I say to them, what could this politician do for me? Um, how can they help this situation? And then right at the end of your little note, say to them, uh, let them know if you're willing to do media because that will, if you are, then that will signal to them that they it may be worth their while getting back to you quickly. So the, the other major thing is the MP support staff can be just as helpful and easier to engage with than the MP. Absolutely. I have never spoken to the three MPs I'm in regular contact with, not once, but I'm in regular contact with their staff. Every email I send, they respond to, and I make sure to give them a drip regularly of things that um, just to keep it alive in their minds who I am and what I'm on about. But not, not harassing or haranguing them, but keeping them in touch. No, no, I just, you know, you might want to know this or I found this link or just, you know, something. Um, so while your first point of contact would be usually the MP, then the person who's going to answer that is a staff member. 
and you're probably your response will be from a staff member. And so, you know, you, you get back to them straight away, you use their first name, you copy the MP in so he knows his staff is talking to you, uh, he or she knows that the staffs are talking to you, and always thank them for their support, for, take, you know, for listening, all that stuff. And then regardless of what they say, keep this drip feed up of updates to the situation, how you're feeling. If you're having an online event, invite them. Doesn't matter if they come or they don't come. And if they don't come, you tell them how many people attended and how it went. You just, you draw them in, basically. And then finally, if you do decide to do media, and it's a big if, um, you need to be aware that you'll generally be interviewed in person or on the phone. Have your five points in front of you because you will not get a second chance. And those are the sorts of things they will ask you. So have them there in front of you. If if you they will use a photo, and if they haven't got one that you like, they'll use one that they like. So much better to give them one you like. You won't get to see the story before it goes out, and there will inevitably be things in there that you feel aren't right or that embarrass you. Once it's out there, it's out there, and you have to let it go. Um, I made it. I found it very hard, and in the end, I didn't read what they wrote because I thought the important thing is it's on the front page of the local paper. It's in general positive terms. People know about it. And I thought, well, every shield for everyone is worth losing a bit of dignity for. And you know what, Blanche? It really works, doesn't it? Because, you know, now you're getting recognised at hospital and, you know, you've become this, this face of, well, basically the forgotten 500,000 in Scotland I know you don't like that's uncomfortable for you but the point is my god how brilliant not to be anonymous not to be forgotten because every single one of you should not be forgotten and I think this is so empowering to hear how to navigate the system and not be a pain in the arse but be persistent Mark what do you think uh I think she's brilliant and I I echo everything she said um you'd vote for her yeah yeah definitely <laughs> What about you, Patrick? Oh, Patrick, you're on mute. It's not just Nicola. <laughs> Hang on. The, I think I'm, no, no, yes. Um, no, I completely agree, Mark. It's, I think it, what Blanche said is absolutely wonderful. It's a very straightforward, but it's a, it's, a, it's a clear sort of guide through how to deal with those nasty people in the media. Um, <laughs> try to get your um, get your message across. I, I, I'm, yes, I'm really amazed that, that it's, I think it's brilliant. What a toolkit, Leonard, because, you know, I know this stuff, Blanche knows this stuff, but now you all know this stuff, and especially you as a clinician, you know, how do you feel about it? I didn't know this stuff. I vote Blanche for PM, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but joking aside, I think you have to be your own champions, because if you're forgotten, then you don't. if you don't ask, you don't get in the world, I guess, nowadays. So um, you've just got to put yourself out there. And you guys have done for, uh, for I guess it's May, such a long time. Um, but but you have to not be forgotten, because we all care about each other, support each other, talk to anyone you can think who's important pull your strings from your family anyone who works in central government needs to know about this and ask and ask point five blank says how can could you give me advice on how you could help me that's how oh, you yes. do it isn't it clever oh, well blanche you want to jump in 
Yes, I did. I, I guess one of the things for me, a very strong reason to keep fighting is that they've done this once to us. If they get away with it, they'll do it again. And that's my fear. To other groups? to uh, In the sense of delaying an essential medication, putting it through a process that is unlike the process for the other drugs in the same category, and using excuses that sort of sound scientific um, to people who don't know better and who are politicians usually. Uh, so it, it's, it, it's that. I just don't want them to get away with it twice. Do you know what I think we should do? I think anyone listening to this or seeing this should send this to Robert Jenry, not Robert Jenry, he's gone, <laughs> to Steve Bartley or to somebody, Wilkins, somebody else in the department, and say, maybe you should see this because it just encapsulates what the journey's been, what the struggle is, and what the ongoing struggle will be. And I just hope that people listen to what Blanche has said and feel empowered and don't feel shy. And yes, be prepared to maybe lose a little bit of dignity if you want for the bigger picture, which means you could win this battle. We're rooting for you. We're kind of over time probably now, but I think it's been really worthwhile. If there's anyone that anyone else wants to say before we draw close to this, what do you reckon, Leonard? Support each other, stay strong. And um, if you are shielding for, is it the fourth Christmas now? I think we're all third, third Christmas. Christmas. We are all rooting for you at the moment. Eventually freedom will come for everyone else. Um, but um, yeah, stay strong because I think the community cares about you and so do your doctors. Absolutely. We're not going to go anywhere anytime soon. Uh, we'll keep rooting. We're hoping to be back next Friday. I think I'm abroad somewhere, but I'll be doing something hopefully with you next week with uh, with Leonard's uh, help, of course. Uh, and we're maybe going to get somebody from AstraZeneca. If anyone knows Kate Bingham out there, we would love her to come on this panel. It'd be absolutely amazing to talk to her. So we'll chase that down as well. You're not forgotten. Um, you're with us. I hope you share this with as many people as you can and keep talking about it and keep getting the issues out there and use Blanche's five-point plan or whatever it was. Maybe we should tweak that as a document or something, just a little toolkit. That might be an idea, Blanche. Anyway, thank you for your time. Thank you to the panel. Nicola had to scarp her. She had uh, family duties to do, but very grateful to her and to all of you and to everybody listening and watching. Thank you. Keep the faith. Thank you.